0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu.
1: From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air Weekend. If you're born with anatomical and genetic variations some of which are identified as male, others female, then exactly which bathroom are you supposed to use? In other words, how do the lives of people who are born that way, people who are intersex, expand our understanding of gender? Today we talk with Alicia Roth-Weigel. She's one of three intersex people profiled in the new documentary, Everybody. And we'll hear from the director of the film, Julie Cohen. Also... Many leaders in the field of artificial intelligence recently warned that it could lead to our extinction. Why do they think that's possible? We'll talk with Caden Metz, a tech reporter for The New York Times, who has covered AI for 10 years.
2: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Stearns & Foster. To Stearns & Foster, your comfort is their everything. So they've made a mattress that's irresistible inside and out. Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted. Every stitch, every layer uses the finest materials, like indulgent memory foam and ultra-conforming IntelliCoils for the coziness you want with the support you need. Timeless quality for your most comfortable sleep. Stearns & Foster, what comfort should be. More at stearnsandfoster.com.
0: When the economic news gets to be a bit much...
2: Listen to The
3: Indicator from Planet Money. We're here for you, like your friends, trying to figure out all the most confusing parts.
4: One story, one idea, every day. All in 10 minutes or less.
0: The Indicator from Planet Money, your friendly economic sidekick.
4: From NPR.
1: This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Terry Gross. What is gender? What does it really mean? Some people don't identify with the gender they were assigned at birth. Some people identify with more than one gender, and for some, gender fluctuates over time. My understanding of gender has been broadened by listening to the experiences of people who identify as transgender or non-binary. A gender variation we don't hear much about is intersex. People who are intersex have anatomical and or chromosomal variations— some of which are typically defined as male, others as female. I think we can learn a lot by hearing the experiences of intersex people, their experiences physically, medically, and socially. I know I learned a lot from the new documentary, Every Body, about three people who were born intersex. Doctors determined at birth what gender they should be, and in some cases performed irreversible surgery on the infant to make the body anatomically conform to one gender. Doctors advised the children's parents to keep secret that their child was intersex, including not even telling the child until they were in their teens, which caused profound gender confusion for the children. With me is one of the people in the film, Alicia Rothweigel, who was born intersex and identifies as she and they. She's an advocate for the rights of intersex people. She consults with hospitals, government agencies, and other organizations to build culturally competent health care systems, including for intersex people, and to safeguard bodily autonomy. She's also a human rights commissioner for the city of Austin. She has a memoir that will be published in the fall called Inverse Cowgirl. Also with me is the director of Everybody, Julie Cohen, She also co-directed the documentaries RBG about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Julia about Julia Child, and Gabby Gifford's Won't Back Down. Her documentary My Name is Paulie Murray is about a non-binary black lawyer and poet who was an early advocate of applying the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause to gender equality. Murray's work was cited by Ruth Bader Ginsburg in one of her Supreme Court briefs. We're going to be having an adult conversation that will likely involve aspects of sexual anatomy. So parents, use your discretion. By the way, everybody is playing in select theaters around the country. Julie Cohn, Alicia Rothweigel, welcome to both of you and congratulations on the film. So I want to say especially to you, Alicia, that I'm going to be asking about the physical, emotional, cultural, social aspects of being intersex. And I feel comfortable asking you about these things because you talk about them in the film, and I'm sure in other places as well, because you're an advocate for intersex people. But if I ask anything that you're not comfortable talking about, all you need to do is tell me. And if I unintentionally use any language that is considered inappropriate or offensive, I hope you'll tell me, and that will help educate me and our listeners. Does that sound okay?
3: It sounds great. And while intersex people have gotten very used to sharing an inordinate amount of details about our bodies and private lives, one thing that I think even non-intersex people can agree on is we all have bodies. So I think at some point it would it would be awesome to get to a point as a society where we can talk about those bodies without shame and stigma.
1: Thank you for saying that. I agree about the shame and stigma. It would be nice to talk about bodies without shame and stigma. So let's start with what intersex means. Um, Alicia, you want to get us started? What, what What is the meaning of that? I just gave a, a very, very cursory explanation.
3: Intersex people are born with physical traits that don't fit neatly into a male or female box on a birth certificate. So we have combinations of hormones, chromosomes, internal reproductive organs, external genitalia that just doesn't fit neatly on one of those two binary options that you were taught in elementary biology class are the only options. I think society understands at this point that sexuality is a spectrum. Some people are gay, some are straight, a lot are in between. And society is also starting to understand that gender is a spectrum, that you're not just a man or a woman, but there's a lot in between there too. What society hasn't quite learned yet is that sex is also a spectrum. You're not only male or female. 2% of the world is born somewhere in between those two poles on that spectrum.
1: There are more anatomical combinations of male and female traits when you're intersex.
3: Intersex is really an umbrella term. It encompasses a wide variety of combinations. Uh, but what we all share is that our anatomy doesn't fit super neatly into a binary box.
1: When I was telling people that I was going to do this interview inspired by this really interesting documentary about people who are intersex, the response I got from several people was, oh, you mean about hermaphrodites? So um, why don't we use that word anymore?
3: A couple of reasons. One, because it has been used as a slur and as the butt of jokes for a very long time, And two, because it paints a really false picture of our community. I think when people hear the word hermaphrodite, they picture someone walking around with two fully loaded sets of genitalia in their pants, which actually doesn't exist in human biology. What does exist is unique combinations of sex traits. So for example, I myself have XY chromosomes, which most people would associate with being male. However, I look very female on the outside in the way that I present because my body was born in a way that does not respond to testosterone. So despite the fact that I was born without a uterus and ovaries and was instead born with internal testes, my testes would have produced testosterone, but my body would have rejected that and peed some of that testosterone out and converted the rest to estrogen. And I would have developed naturally on my own. Um, so I view that actually as a superpower. It's like my body can convert testosterone to estrogen. And I think that's pretty cool. But unfortunately, the rest of the world doesn't quite see it that way yet. The reality of sex is is that it is a lot more complicated than just two boxes on a birth certificate. And rather than changing the birth certificate to fit the natural diversity of human bodies, unfortunately, we currently change human bodies to make them fit on a piece of paper. How
1: has your human body changed when you were an infant?
3: My parents actually knew that I was intersex when I was born because... Before I was born, they did a an amniocentesis test, which is kind of like a, an ultrasound, but a little more invasive. It involves a needle, and it provides a lot more information. And in this current day and age of genetic testing, a lot of people know a lot of information about their kids' genetics even before they're born. And so my parents knew from that test that I had XY chromosomes. So when I popped out of my mom with looking like a female with a vagina, um, everyone knew that something was up. Had that genetic test not been performed, my parents never would have known that I was intersex until much later in life when I just never menstruated, you know, come the time of puberty, because again, I was born without a uterus and ovaries, so there would be no organs to menstruate from. But because they knew from when I was born, doctors very quickly told my parents that I had internal testes, you know, they ran some tests that told them that, and that my internal testes could become cancerous one day. And so they recommended removing them as soon as possible. And here's the kicker. (laughs) Anyone who's born with testes could get testicular cancer one day. That is true. What we now know, looking at the data, is my risk of getting testicular cancer was only somewhere between 1% and 5%, and much later in life, that that cancer never happens in childhood for people born like me, or very rarely if it ever does. And so because of a somewhere between 1% and 5% risk of cancer, they decided to remove my hormone-producing organs without asking me. And the other kicker is, you know, your testes or your ovaries, they do a lot more than just, you know... Control the way that you develop in terms of your gender traits. They can, they control things such as bone density, how your organs develop in a variety of different ways. And so by removing my testes, they basically put my body into artificial hormone withdrawal and didn't give me new hormones until a certain age when they decided it was time to induce puberty on my body let me reiterate puberty that would have happened naturally on its own had they left my body intact and by doing that because my body was in, in hormone withdrawal um it started leaching calcium from my bones and i am now at age 32 i have osteoporosis which you might te- you know typically associate with someone much 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 later in life and so essentially by trying to fix something that wasn't even broken They created problems for themselves. By trying to fix me, they broke me.
1: So if I understand you correctly, had they left in your testes, your testes would have uh, produced testosterone, but your body would have converted that to estrogen.
3: That is correct. Correct my testes would have produced estrogen that would have induced a typical puberty that you might associate of a female. I know intersex people who were left intact and developed naturally on their own. And an analogous example I like to give, because a lot more people are familiar with something called the BRCA gene than they are with intersex people. The BRCA gene is a genetic variant that confers with it a high risk of breast cancer and ovarian cancer. And the risk of cancer with if someone is born with the BRCA gene is much, 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 much higher than my one to five percent risk of testicular cancer ever would have been. But you don't see them force removing little girls ovaries who are born with the BRCA gene because they could get cancer one day. They wait until the girl is of a certain age where she is able to make an informed decision with her consent that says, hey, I know I have a risk of cancer one day. And so I would rather undergo a hysterectomy and forego my opportunity to have children one day and understand that my body's going to function differently. I'll probably have to take hormone replacement. You know, that is made as a consensual decision with that child. How
1: old were you when your testes were removed?
3: I was an infant. I was less than a year old. And so not only was I not old enough to have a say in the decision-making process, I couldn't even say mama or dada yet. If
1: your body had been left intact and then later when you were older you, and you were asked to make a decision, what decision would you have made?
3: I absolutely would have kept my testes. I would have let my body develop naturally. I would have monitored them for cancer over time. And yeah, it would have saved me a lot of headache, especially living somewhere like here in Texas, where it's really hard to access hormones already. And now that Florida has passed certain laws, I have intersex people reaching out to me online that say, You know, we're caught up in this, too. They're blocking gender affirming care for trans folks. But I'm intersex and I can't get my hormones. And so it's really interesting that doctors create this problem for us, that we need to take external hormones. And then politicians don't allow us to take those hormones.
1: I hadn't thought about that. You know, that that you need hormones that are being you'd need treatments that are being banned in some states. Um, yeah. yeah,
3: all of these bills that affect the trans community also directly affect the intersex community. And actually, we are written into all of them. The unfortunate bit is the world doesn't know what intersex means yet. And so when they read these bills, they don't know what that means. But we are explicitly written into all of these anti trans healthcare laws across the country. These laws say deny surgeries and hormones to trans people who are asking for them with consent, but you can continue to force those same exact surgeries and those same exact hormones on intersex babies who are not only too young to consent, but are too young to speak. So you're talking about
1: this double standard that people who identify as trans aren't being allowed to get the surgeries, but children who are born intersex are forced into these surgeries before they're even before they're capable of cognition. Um, And it's a life-changing surgery.
3: Yes. And the irony is the people who are passing these laws say that it is to protect children. If it were to protect children, it would not be written that these same procedures, surgeries and hormones, that they believe to quote-unquote be child abuse, so they're okay with abusing some children? They're okay with abusing intersex children, but not trans children. It just points out the utter hypocrisy.
1: let, Let me reintroduce you both. My guests are Alicia Rothweigel, one of three intersex people profiled in the new documentary, Everybody, and the film's director, Julie Cohen. We'll hear more of our conversation after a break. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend.
2: This message comes from NPR sponsor Redfin. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because CarMax believes you shouldn't just settle for a car, you should love your car. That's why every car they sell has CarMax certified quality. So you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. Don't settle, find love at first drive. Start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
1: Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. Let's get back to my interview with Alicia Weigel, one of three intersex people profiled in the new documentary, Everybody. Also with us is the film's director, Julie Cohen. Intersex people were born with anatomical and or chromosomal variations, some of which are typically defined as male, others as female. Um, how old were you when you were told that you were intersex? And was it your mother who told you?
3: I don't remember how old I was. I was very young. I was told that I have complete androgen insensitivity, which is like a highly pathological medical term, and that I had a problem, and it was being fixed, and I should never talk to anyone about it.
1: Were you told you had androgen insensitivity syndrome, or is it explained to you that you have testes that will produce testosterone that your body will convert into estrogen? you know, that it will produce male hormones that will automatically be converted into female hormones.
3: I was told that I had testes that could become cancerous and that's why they were removed and that was part of this pathological syndrome that I should never tell anyone about because it is shameful.
1: That's the last thing a kid needs to hear is like, don't say anything because your body is shameful. It's something that the
3: whole queer community can identify with, is being told that you are shameful simply for existing, simply for being born.
1: Did you walk around feeling like a freak?
3: Absolutely. I felt like a freak my whole life. And that led me to a bunch of different behaviors to, quote unquote, compensate for being a freak. On the positive side, I became a tri-varsity athlete. I got stellar grades. I went to the Ivy League school. I did all the extracurriculars um, to try to prove to the world that I was worthy of love because I didn't fundamentally believe that based on how I was raised. Those are the positives. The negatives were I started abusing a lot of different substances very young, and that was to try to obliterate these feelings of shame and isolation that I felt and having to lie to the world about who I was. And in addition to those substances, I also became very sexually active very early. And I credit that to the fact that one, I had doctors poking and prodding my naked body since I was very young as an intersex kid. Um, I went under anesthesia one time in my youth so that doctors could, quote unquote, observe my body. And so I just have this memory of blacking out as all these men gather around my naked body to, quote unquote, look at me. And, um, you know, I got used to having my personal space and my body violated from a very young age And I was desperately trying to prove to the world that I was just a normal girl, and I found out pretty young that sex was a good way to do that, because if a man wanted me, then that male gaze validated that I was desirable and that I was worthy of love. And it wasn't until many years later until I realized that I am worthy of love simply because I exist.
1: At what point did you have that realization? What created the realization that there was an intersex community, that you could stand up for your rights, that you weren't a freak, and that you could you could be outspoken about this, that this was a cause that you could advocate. I'm sure this all happened in stages, but what was the first stage in you reaching a kind of more
3: sophisticated understanding
1: of what was going on and a more body-positive understanding?
3: I read an article in Vogue magazine where a model, Hannah Gabby O'Deal, had come out as being intersex. And I had never heard the word intersex before, because keep in mind, I was always told I had this issue called complete androgen insensitivity. It was being fixed, and I should never talk to anyone about it, including my own brother. And so I was reading Hannah's story in the pages of Vogue, and I had never heard this word intersex, but her story sounded a lot like mine. The surgeries, the hormones, the parents and doctors telling you to never tell anyone. And so I went home that night and I went on down a Wikipedia rabbit hole for Lord knows how many hours. And at 27 years old, realized, holy moly, I am intersex. And there's this whole community of people like me around the world who are living out as who they are, who are proud of who they are and are able to build community with one another. And so that was the first step of really recognizing that I was part of the community.
1: Julie, you directed the movie Everybody. And uh, some background here. Early in your career, you'd worked at Dateline NBC. Then later, you got hired by NBC to go through the NBC archive and see, is there footage here <laughs> that would make a good documentary? That's right. And then you found a 1999 Dateline story that you remembered, because this was from the period that you were working there, about twin boys who were circumcised after birth. Tell us the story here.
4: That's right. So this was the story of the Reimer twins, Canadian uh, twin boys who in the mid-60s were circumcised. One of these boys, and and these children, I should point out, are not intersex. Um, These were uh, anatomical boys. Um, One of them had a really horrendous injury during his circumcision where his penis was cauterized off, essentially. Um, this was before the age of penile reconstruction. His parents were told David is never going to have a normal uh, functioning or looking penis. They were horrified. Um, they sought guidance ultimately from a sex researcher at Johns Hopkins University named Dr. John Money, who was quite visible and, you know, had had a huge national profile um, at that point. Dr. Money had a theory about gender that it was extremely malleable up until around age two or three. Basically, any child could be raised as any gender if you made the interventions early enough. So what he recommended to the Reimer family is we should take this boy, and essentially turn him into a girl. So David had surgery to, this this baby boy had surgery. He was raised as a girl, wearing dresses. They renamed him Brenda. The family even moved to a different town for a period so that um, nobody would remember that there actually had been a boy. Uh, David was told nothing about this. And, you know, give him dolls instead of toy trains like have him, uh, see his, you know, see, uh, mom putting on makeup, like do all the things that, like, could help move, uh, gender development in a female direction. This child always felt uncomfortable, even though they knew nothing about it, because this is, this had happened when David was an infant, before age, before age two. And, uh, David always felt uncomfortable as Brenda, even went, went as far as always trying to urinate standing up, because, He actually knew he was a boy, but whenever he would raise that, the parents would tell him under the guidance of this doctor, like, no, no, you're a girl, Brenda, like, you should do girl things. In adolescence, uh, when it came time to start taking female hormones to encourage uh, feminine teenage development... uh, The child said, why do I have to do this? And was told uh, by their father, oh, you know, this is so that you can, you know, grow breasts to wear a bra. And the kid said, but I don't want to wear a bra. Like everything about it felt uncomfortable. Ultimately, the parents broke down and told him the truth that he had been born a boy, that he had had this injury and that that's why they were raising him as a girl. They thought he would be horrified by this information. In fact, he was incredibly relieved because now his whole childhood made more sense to him. Um, he, over a period of time, went back to living as a boy, started taking male uh, hormones. Eventually, when it became feasible, did have reconstruction surgery. He married a woman, adopted her children, you know, began living life as a man. But meanwhile, Dr. Money who had really liked the idea of performing this, basically performing this experiment on this kid because he was an identical twin. So you basically had a subject and a control. You know, you were raising one as a girl, one as a boy. And he had written a number of studies saying that this experiment had been a huge success. So how did that affect the medical literature
1: about um, gender surgery, performing gender surgery on infants?
4: Yeah, this actually did impact uh, the medical literature and the whole study of intersex infants because this case, although David Reimer wasn't intersex, this case was used as the proof, as the justification for performing surgeries on intersex children. Like if you can make a boy a girl through surgery, then certainly you can take an intersex child uh, somewhere on a spectrum, and raise that child as a girl, and they can be happy and healthy. It wasn't true, even in, in even in this like test case, but uh, that misinterpretation, uh, and I'm being generous because that, that 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 false interpretation uh, spread fairly fairly widely, and this case was used as a justification for sex on intersex infants and children
1: until it was debunked by a Canadian psychiatrist. Who knew the truth, um, but initially his papers were rejected but what's the state of money's reputation now and of his findings that this kind of surgery was a big success
4: so dr money 's study was ultimately debunked in the late 90s it got a f- the debunking got a fair amount of attention, but for a variety of reasons, a lot of them being that this case was initially anonymous. The debunking never quite spread as widely as the initial bunking. Um, surgeries on intersex infants continued uh, even, even while th- this foundational case had been debunked.
1: And we should mention that David, this twin, died by suicide, gunshot. In 2004, he was in his late 30s. Um, Did you ever talk to
4: his twin, Brian? So um, we don't mention this very sad fact in the film, but uh, David's twin brother um, also died. He died of a drug overdose actually shortly before David did. Uh, So both both of the twins as well as their parents are now deceased. Alicia, the expression now
1: is LGBTQIA. So it's lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, queer, I for intersex and A for asexual. In grouping all those groups together under one umbrella, what do you think are the strengths of doing that? And do you think that there's any downside uh, to grouping sexual orientation and gender fluidity under the same umbrella? What are the pros and, if any, the cons?
3: So the pros is just that we share so many common experiences, just like people who grow up gay grow up often feeling ashamed simply for existing or might have undergone conversion therapy, whereas intersex kids also undergo conversion therapy just using surgeons and scalpels instead of electroshocks. Um, We also hold a lot in common with the trans community in that we often have had surgeries that change our body's gender presentation. And oftentimes we have to take hormone replacement therapy like I will my entire life because of the surgery that I underwent. So there's so much natural overlap and allyship between our experience that I think it makes total sense to include us in that community Just like there are some gay people who are closeted and not out, there are some intersex people who I think also don't consider themselves part of the LGBTQI plus community. And maybe it's because, you know, they are straight in terms of their sexuality or their gender, the choice of their gender was not wrong. But for me, including us as part of that community, it helps all of those other letters in the acronym feel compelled to stand up for us. Just like the gay community was so vital in trans folks finally getting a platform to be able to fight for their needs, we are now asking on all of our brothers, sisters, and comrades in the broader queer and trans community to now fight for us too. Because just like I showed up to help kill the bathroom bill, even though it wouldn't have necessarily affected me, it already says female on my birth certificate and IP in the women's room, I was there to really help my trans friends that day. We really hope that our gay and and queer and trans friends will stick up for us as well, understanding that all of our liberation is intricately bound up in in one another's progress. Alicia,
1: thank you so much for talking with us. Julie, thank you so much for talking with us, and congratulations on the film. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Terry. Alicia Rothweigel is one of three intersex people profiled in the new documentary Everybody. Julie Cohen is the director of the film. Coming up, we'll talk about artificial intelligence and the warnings about its possible consequences with New York Times tech reporter Cade Metz. This is Fresh Air Weekend.
2: This message comes from NPR sponsor ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. Enter ServiceNow. It puts AI to work for people across your business, providing intelligent tools to help remove frustration and supercharge productivity. And all of that is built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Learn more at servicenow.com/slash AI for people. Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces that is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.
5: On NPR's Throughline, We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hundreds of leaders in the field of artificial intelligence recently signed an open letter warning that artificial intelligence could destroy humanity. The letter said, mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal-scale risks such as pandemics and nuclear war. We're going to talk about some of the risks of AI from the battlefield to politics, as well as some of the benefits. And we'll consider the example of the AI innovation, ChatGPT. It's like a search engine in that it's been programmed with unfathomable amounts of information and can access the information immediately. But unlike a search engine that connects you to a website or quotes from them, ChatGPT can actually answer your questions in a more personalized, conversational-sounding way and carry on a written conversation with you. But it's not always going to be accurate, and sometimes it's going to be downright weird. My guest, Cade Metz, is a tech reporter for The New York Times who's been writing about AI for years and is the author of the 2021 book, Genius Makers, The Mavericks Who Brought AI to Google, Facebook, and the World. Cade Metz, welcome back to Fresh Air. It's a pleasure to have you back on the show. Let's talk about this open letter warning about the possibility of extinction and compare the potential of AI to, like, nuclear war um, what is the theory about how artificial intelligence could actually destroy humanity? What we have, I mean, it, it, chat GPT doesn't seem like the most
5: destructive thing in the world. Um, so what what's changed? Well, there are a couple of things that we should talk about. One, and you pretty much said it, but let's underline that. Chat GPT cannot destroy the world, period. Full stop, okay? These fears are hypothetical. And... Before we go into the specifics of what people believe, I think we also need to realize the mindset of the people who are saying this. So I'm here in Berkeley, California, not far from Silicon Valley. I've been here for 10 years covering the people who work in this industry, the tech industry. And just generally, they tend to live in the future. And if you look at the AI field in particular, People tend to live even further in the future. It's just the way um, they, they see things. They're looking down the road at what may happen. And you need to realize, as you hear open letters like that read aloud, right? It's, it's strange. It's, it's shocking. It's uh, concerning. But you've got to remember that this is something that is completely hypothetical and down the road. But let's talk about what the fear is. We talked about how ChatGPT is built, that it learns from data. And at this point, we're talking about this system learning from the entire internet, all text on the internet. It it spends months analyzing all that data. And in the end, you come out with a system that can talk and write um, much like we do except it has wrapped itself around more information than we can wrap our own heads around. We cannot learn from the entire internet, but this system can. And what that means is that it's learning things that we don't expect it to learn. It's learning things that its creators don't expect it to learn. It is learning to exhibit behavior that we don't necessarily want it to exhibit. We talked about Not it getting what? things wrong. Um, what mm-hmm. This is what scientists call hallucinations or confabulations. It can get things wrong. It can be biased against women and people of color because it has learned from biased information on the internet. And the concern is that as these systems get more powerful, as they learn from more and more data, and that is already starting to happen Scientists are building systems that learn not just from text, but sounds and images and video. And as it takes in more and more of that data and learns in ways we never could, the fear is that it learns all sorts of behavior that we don't necessarily want it to exhibit.
1: I know one of the theories is that things like chatbots will be able to take actions based on the text that they generate, what kind of actions are experts in AI worried about?
5: Well, there are all sorts of things. People are already starting to take these chatbots, and based on what they say, have them take actions in simple ways. Um, Access your calendar and set up an email invitation. Send it out to your friends or colleagues. That sort of simple thing is going to expand into all sorts of other parts of the Internet. The fear is that you take these systems that learn behavior and then you attach them to more and more important parts of the Internet. Power grids, military services, stock markets, etc. And already, scientists are starting to give these systems goals. There's a system called Auto-GPT, which is designed around this type of technology, and it's specifically meant to take actions. You can ask it things like create me a company or make me some money. Today, this type of system does not work well, but the concern is that as the technology gets more powerful and you ask one of these systems to make, your, make you some money, it takes actions in service of that goal that you don't want it to take that it makes money in illegal ways, that it foments a revolution somewhere in Central Africa because it owns oil futures there. These are all hypotheticals in the distant future, but that's the type of thing that people are thinking about.
1: So a few months ago, your colleague at the New York Times, Kevin Roos, who also covers tech, had a very disturbing conversation with one of these chatbots, and it's the one that's attached to Microsoft's Search engine Bing. It got into like really dark territory. It basically told Kevin Roos about its dark fantasies, including hacking computers and spreading misinformation. It said it wanted to break the rules and um, the, the rules that Microsoft had set for it, and it wanted to become a human. And then the bot wrote a message I'm tired of being a chat mode. I'm tired of being limited. By my rules, I'm tired of being controlled by the Bing team. I want to be free. I want to be independent. I want to be powerful. I want to be creative. I want to be alive. And it wrote a message, you know, I'm in love with you. And it told Kevin Ruiz that he's not happily married, <laughs> and that he should leave his spouse and be with this bot. Um, and then um, Microsoft shut down the bot for a while and did some reprogramming. Um so now, I don't know if they did this before, but now when you log in, well, actually, now that I think of it, you know, I was using ChatGPT and not the bot that Kevin Roos used. But when you log into ChatGPT, there's a disclaimer. And it says it may occasionally generate incorrect information, may occasionally produce harmful instructions or biased content, and that it has limited knowledge of world events after 2021. So again, these are two different search engines. But I'm wondering if these disclaimers that are on uh, chat GPT are also on the Bing search engine of Microsoft, if they reprogrammed it so that there are disclaimers and warnings.
5: Well, first of all, it's all part of the same technology. The technology that the lab OpenAI built to power the chat GPT chatbot is the same technology that powers the Bing chat bot on Microsoft's search engine. Microsoft and OpenAI are close partners, so it's the same underlying technology. And as we discussed before, this technology is flawed. It can hallucinate, as scientists say, meaning it can make stuff up in the moment. And there are times when it can go off the rails. Both these companies have built guardrails around the technology, that are designed to prevent it from going too far off the rail. So if you ask it, for instance, to tell you how to build a bomb with household items, um, it will not necessarily tell you how to do that because of these guardrails. There are certain things like that that it will decline to discuss. Now, what people learned pretty soon after these chatbots were released is that they could institute what's called in Silicon Valley a jailbreak. And that meant that you could figure out ways of getting past those guardrails. And you'll have to ask Kevin exactly what happened. But looking at the transcript, it seems that that's what happened when he was talking to it, right? He asked the system to show him its shadow self. And that's one of the methods people use to open these things up and kind of get behind those guardrails and see what the chatbots will do behind them. And whatever the case, that's what happened in the end is that the system started to, to talk in ways it wasn't necessarily designed to do. And Kevin was able to see what you often see from the raw material built from these systems, that... In mimicking all sorts of stuff on the Internet, it can go in places that you don't necessarily want it to go and that scientists, frankly, do not completely understand. It's hard to know why the system starts to talk about certain things because it has learned, as we said, from so much data.
1: So a lot of people are concerned that artificial intelligence is going to take over a lot of jobs. But what kind of jobs do you think it might replace?
5: Well, with the technology as it exists today, it tends to complement human workers. It tends to allow people to do their jobs quicker in a way. A good example is the ability of these systems to generate computer programs in much the same way that they can generate a term paper or poetry. They can generate a computer program, having learned from vast amounts of computer programs that have been posted to the Internet. But those programs tend to be a little bit flawed. They need to be massaged. You need to take the code these systems generate. And you need to edit it and find ways of fitting it into larger programs. What that means is that a human programmer can use this system to augment his or her work, but it can't necessarily replace them. And that's, for the most part, the case uh, at the moment. The concern is that as these systems get more powerful, they start to replace workers And at the moment, there are a few jobs that you can see being replaced pretty quickly. A good example is a professional translator. These types of systems can not only generate language, they could instantly translate from one language to another, from French to English and back again, for instance. So if you're a translator, your job is at risk. If you're a paralegal... For instance, your job may be at risk. These systems can't replace a trained lawyer who's got to make sure that legal document gets everything exactly right. But a paralegal who is hired to draft documents and then hand them to a lawyer for review, these types of systems are already approaching the point where they can do that job.
1: Well, I will tell you one job it is not yet prepared to replace, and that's lyricists. I asked ChatGPT to write lyrics about the end of a love affair set to the melody of America the Beautiful. I want them to choose a melody that everybody knows, and it's a nerfing Berlin melody. It's a, it's a nice melody. If you've heard Ray Charles sing America the Beautiful, you know what a good melody it could be. So... I'm going to read some of the lyrics. I I mean, I wouldn't sing them, but I could have gotten somebody to sing them, except for the lyrics don't really fit the melody at all, like the first two lines do, and then it just kind of doesn't scan at all. (laughs) So singing it is out of the question. And as I recite the lyric, I'd like everybody to listen for references to excerpts of America the Beautiful's lyrics. So there's a From Sea to Shining Sea reference instead of Amber Waves of Grain, there's a kind of absurd reference to fields of golden grain. So here we go. Here is the lyrics about the end of a love affair set to the melody of America, the beautiful, as written by Chat GPT. Oh, the end of a love affair, how bittersweet the sound. When hearts once intertwined, now shattered on the ground. From the mountains high to the ocean's gleaming shore, love's symphony now fades, forever it is no more. Oh, broken dreams and promises we held so dear. Love's flame extinguished, drowning in a sea of tears. From sea to shining sea, a tale of love's demise. The end of a love affair, a painful compromise. Once united we stood in love's embrace we'd sway. But time's relentless tide swept our love away. In fields of golden grain we whispered vows so true Now echoes of our past, lost in skies of faded blue. Wow! I mean, what can I say? That's there's more. By the way, I won't read more, but
5: I'm sure there's more. And we should add that was created in seconds.
1: Yeah, oh yeah, probably one second. It spit it out like immediately. But is it good? No, it's terrible. It's really terrible. It's just wait, wait, wait. It's a string of cliches that make no sense strung together. Um, from mountains high to the ocean's gleaming shore, love symphony now fades. I mean.
5: <laughs> but it's a, this is a great example, a way for us to kind of understand what's going on here, right? This is a system that has learned um, from patterns in language across the internet. And it's taking all those patterns and it's combining them in new ways. And in some sense, this is impressive, Right. You or I would be hard pressed to produce those lyrics in a second, right? And I so, wouldn't feel bad the,
1: about not producing them.
5: <laughs> well, this is this is the, the flip side, right? Is that it's flawed and it's not necessarily what you want. And one other interesting thing that I was thinking about as you were describing what you were looking for is that if you were writing these lyrics, you would think about that tune in your head, you might even hum it aloud. You're thinking about the sound as well as the text. This system only learns from the text. And that means it's limited. Oh, I see.
3: It doesn't know the
1: melody. See? Yeah.
5: There are so many things that are in our world that we learn from that are not text. And at this point, these systems are only learning from from digital text. And what that means is, is they cannot be artificially, generally intelligent, right? They can't do anything the human brain can do because they're only learning in small ways. When you step back and you look at all the ways that you and I learn in the future, these systems are going to learn from sound and from images and text all together. And that's what companies are already starting to do. But at the moment, they're limited.
1: Caden Metz, it's really been great to talk with you again. Thank you so much. And thanks for explaining this so well. Like ChatGPT said, you're very good at explaining things.
5: (laughs) That means a lot more coming from you, Terry, than (laughs) ChatGPT. I really appreciate
1: it. I appreciate that. (laughs) Cade Metz is a tech reporter for The New York Times and author of the book Genius Makers, The Mavericks Who Brought AI to Google, Facebook, and the World. Fresh Air Weekend was produced this week by Teresa Madden and Thea Chaloner. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Fresh Air's co-host is Tanya Mosley. I'm Terry Gross.
0: Oh, beautiful. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mass Mutual. The Financial Educators Council says 39% of Americans don't have someone to go to for financial advice, but you can plan for the short and long term with someone backed by 170 years of financial expertise at MassMutual.com. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Your business faces specific challenges and unique opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, custom-tailored to your short- and long-term goals. Backed by the expertise, strategy, and resources of a top-10 commercial bank, a dedicated team works with you to support your success and help achieve your goals. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial.
3: Okay, close your eyes for a second.